0: Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. hine and I'm joined as always by my esteemed colleague Stephen James Buckley. I'm not sure about esteemed but I'm certainly a colleague.
1: Um, hi everyone, We're today we're, uh, we're on location uh, again at Shire's Head Studio in North Lancashire uh, courtesy of the lovely people at lowfoldaudio.com. Uh, <laughs> well that's the website, lowfoldaudio, Audio, lovely people so... Um, they're there for all your audio needs that's the closest we'll ever get to an advert I'll link in the show notes yeah um so today we're uh, we're on location with a guest um, and our guest today is called Catherine Preston and she is the discoverer of something called the La Manche zodiac now Catherine, we um, we first encountered her in an article by Jenny Randalls in the 14 times. Um, which described something about the um, the Manche Zodiac. And it piqued our interest simply because it was something which, um, aside from being really interesting stuff, was actually quite local to us and was relevant to the area in which we grew up and live. So uh, we read her book, The La Zodiac, and uh, we got in touch with her to come on the podcast. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Uh, so, Catherine, I... Um, Could you give us a brief biography? Tell us about yourself.
2: I was born in a small village called Devon, just outside of Winchester, brought up around southern England mainly. Um, Then I joined the army. I was there for six years, mainly dealing with maps. When I came out of the army, um, I just sort of dead-end nothing type jobs for a few years. And then I got into computer programming where I... More or less ended my career when
1: I retired. Excellent. And so, maps are actually something which um, very much informs uh, the Manche Zodiac, which is what we're, we're here to talk about, um, because it it that's that's sort of how you kind of discovered um, this this uh, terrestrial Zodiac. So, could you perhaps tell us what led you to write this book, and and sort of what brought you to it, how you came about?
2: Well. Um, back in 1968, while I was still in the army, I had a UFO sighting. Wow. Which was um, near Bullington Cross in Hampshire. I was, I was stationed at uh, Barton Stacey. Um, and when I came out, I got involved in a group called the Preston Society for Psychical Research. And they put me sort of in charge of the ley line and UFO side of the, um, the organisation, so I started looking into the link between ley lines and UFOs, and it turned out that my UFO sighting was actually at a point where two ley lines actually crossed.
0: Wow! And could you describe your sighting and what the UFO looked like?
2: Yeah, I was. It was about um, half past twelve, one o'clock in the morning. I was on the way back to camp, and I was very close to Bullington Cross, and I heard this droning sound coming. It appeared to be coming from behind um, a line of poplar trees. Anyway, I stayed there for a for a while because it sounded like it was coming closer. And what I saw was when it, it came right above the top of the poplar trees, right above me, and all I could make out was sort of six bright lights lying astern, travelling at something like 20 mile an hour, no more than that. Going in a straight line across the countryside. It turned out it was actually following one of the ley lines.
1: Okay, so it, like, I mean, that must have been amazing. I, I've never seen a UFO, so I, I'd love to, but I've never, uh, you know, I've never experienced that. I'm just thinking, for our listeners' sake, just in case they don't know, could you perhaps explain what ley lines are?
2: Uh, well, ley lines are basically um, natural earth energy lines. Um, they're throughout the world, but they're mostly were really known in Britain initially, but, I mean, they've been discovered throughout the rest of the world now. I mean, there's loads of major lines that connect, major sites like the Pyramidic Giza, like Nazca, uh, Easter Island, various mm. places like that. But they're, they're basically lines of natural energy, Earth's, Earth's natural energy, which is why a lot of these sites have been built on these points because that's obviously the ancients who built them must have felt the energy and built there.
0: Yeah. You give a really good um, summary in your book of the kind of sites that you might find along ley lines, Mm -hmm. things like churches, castles, bodies of water and and that kind of thing. Yeah. What do you think it was um, about these sites that, that meant that they were picked for these things like the churches and, and what do you think came first? Do you think it was, um, the natural energy was found within the earth and then these sites were put there? Or do you think the sites were put there and formed energy across the earth?
2: Well, I think well the churches um, are on older pre-Christian sites because what happened when, when the Christians came to Britain, tried to persuade the, the natives to become, to worship their God, their, they, they just couldn't, they, they just wouldn't come to, to their worship sites so they decided to build the churches on the ancient sites right um I, I presume there were these sites were discovered long before Christianity um people maybe people back then pre I mean prehistoric certainly pre the um, ice age were um, probably more sensitive to these things than, than modern man
1: yeah what do you think it is that makes us less sensitive now?
2: Uh, I think probably less, less connection with the earth itself, maybe yeah. too much technology. Although technology can be a good thing, obviously, but, um, I think we've lost touch with the, with our natural selves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think we probably both agree with that, don't we? I know yeah. like we've, we've, um, it seems to be a fairly common theme that comes up whenever you're talking about anything, um, Sort of whether you call it esoterical, magical, supernatural, etc., like our connection with the planet, um, whether you think of it as an organism or 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 not, has has faded, and you know we're not kind of as connected with it as we used to be.
0: um, Yeah, I think we have the option now to live completely separate from nature, don't we? You know, in, in Central, centrally heated houses with electric lighting um, and the internet means that we don't have to leave the house. We can get everything yeah. delivered straight to us. I suppose that we we lose all those natural connections that we used to have that we would pick up quite naturally just by being amongst nature and being outside.
2: Native Americans and Aboriginal Australians are still very much in touch. I mean, they firmly believe that you don't own the land. You're just looking after it. Mm. Until the next generation just passing on, you don't own anything. It's the land. The land isn't yours. It's it's yours to look after, not to keep.
1: And of course, those those groups of people treated it far better than we do. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, because it's it's interesting. Like we're talking about all this now, and we're actually recording it in a, a 17th century church. This studio, as you can see, was a church. So there could be a good chance that this lies on a ley line.
2: I did have a look, oh. but uh, couldn't see any clear ley lines. But as not to say there aren't any.
1: Yeah, it could be something that's you know goes back older. Mm. So, how if someone wanted to find ley lines, So you've just described how you you, you look for one for this church. How would people find one in their area? Because I think that's something that we, I think that's one one of the reasons that we wanted you on the podcast was because of your connection to the area that we're familiar with and we, we, we'd like people to be able to almost listen to this and then go out and look for ley lines in their area. So how would you go about doing that?
2: Well, basically, you need to get hold of um, preferably one to 50 Thirlwall and then survey map. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mark on it, you know, the prehistoric mounds, mark stones, circular moats, that sort of thing, castle keeps, ancient beacon points, named wells, Named crossroads, even um, older churches, because they're both built, built on even older sites. Yeah, stone circles, all sorts of things like that. Mark mark those on the map, and then look for connections. Look for straight lines, minimum of three points, preferably four or more.
0: I remember as a kid, I used to go dowsing for ley lines, you know, in the old way that we used to do—take the inside out of two ballpoint pens, bend a coat hanger, and cut it off—and so you had two wire right angles, basically. And I used to go and try looking for them like that. Do you know anything about that sort of dowsing for
2: ley lines and that sort of thing? Um, I haven't actually dowsed for ley lines, but I know it has been done. It's been done by—I mean, I, I'm not that sensitive to the to the energies as a lot of people, but. I know people who have, I know of people who have doused delay lines. I mean, obviously, once you've found them on the map, then you get out there and, and douse them if, if you've got the ability. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's like a double test, isn't it? Just
0: to see. It is, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think that brings us nicely on to your book and, and why you wrote it. So if you could give us, whilst we're talking about you know, glossaries of terms and so on, could you describe to us what a terrestrial zodiac is for our listeners?
2: Well, a terrestrial zodiac is where the signs of the zodiac. The 12 signs of the zodiac are marked out in the, um, the landscape, you know, using old tracks, paths, roads, some streams and rivers in, and some of the natural uh, lay of the land, but not intended. <laughs> <laughs> or was it? Um, yeah, and uh, there's several of them in the country, most of which, well, all of which that I know of are listed in the book, um, the first one that dis- was discovered was the Glastonbury Zodiac, which was discovered in the 1920s by Catherine Maltwood. Mm. And mine was mine. I think the La Zodiac is probably the largest of them all, and it's the only one that's not around a particular point. I mean, like Glastonbury one is surrounding Glastonbury Tor. The Pendle Zodiac is around Pendle Hill. Various others around different points. Whereas mine. Sort of just almost sort of follows a ley line across the countryside from from near Garstang, which is just down the road here, all the way down to the Cheshire Staffordshire border near Congleton.
0: It's fascinating. I think it was particularly fascinating to us because Buckley and I both grew up in Garstang, mm-hmm. um, and our houses are basically connected. Our childhood houses where we grew up basically connected by the dog, which is one of the extra um, figures that that. That factors into the Lamange Zodiac. Um, and um, it's so fascinating as well that you say that it's uh, centered around a ley line. Because when I was um, a young kid, I was obsessed with trying to find a ley line around my house. Um, And there was lots of strange things that happened, which I've talked about in other episodes. You know, I saw strange apparitions and strange lights. And um, there was um, a a lady who was sensitive to this sort of thing, came to our house and and said that there was some strange energy around there. And this was all around Catterall, you know, which is one of the points where, one, you have the dog coming down, which is in the book, and also one of the stars that makes the dragon, which is also uh, clearly laid out in your book. What was it that first um, drew your attention to this, and how did you discover it?
2: Well, I was actually looking for ley lines on the map and marked all the ley points that I'd mentioned before. And it just suddenly struck me that the places I'd marked around the Bolton area just looked like the the stars from the sign of Leo, the constellation of Leo.
0: It's a strange synchronicity there because that was the first one that was discovered um for the original Glastonbury. Yes. Yeah. Mm.
2: Well, Catherine Mortwood was flying over in a in a light plane, and she said that the, the line, the Leo figure, the, the lion figure just sort of leapt out at her. Yeah, you know, it just sort of, it was there. It just sort of, you know, it was so obvious. And the same thing with me in my case. Um, it just, but in her case, it was the shape, in my case, it was the stars because. I have studied astronomy as well, not to a great level, but uh, I have studied it. And so I got a star map book. and just sort of confirmed everything. And I thought, well, if Leo's there, because I'd heard about the old, well, I'd heard about the Glastonbury zodiac by then. And so I thought, well, maybe the adjacent signs are there. So I started looking for them, expecting them to be in a circular or elliptical formation. But then I found them all just the stars at this point. But to my surprise, they were not surrounding everything. They were just going across the countryside. I found all 12 signs in the correct sequence. And then I thought, well, if if the stars are there, are the shapes there? Mm. So I started looking for them and found all of them coinciding with the, with the same areas as the stars.
0: And there's not many of the terrestrial zodiacs that have both the stars and the shapes, are there?
2: No, most have one or the other, mostly the shapes. I think Glastonbury does have the stars, but um, a lot of them don't, as far as I'm aware.
0: So for our listeners, um, when you're talking about finding the stars and the shapes, um, you're talking about f- firstly finding corresponding points on the map that correspond to the star constellations. Is that right? Yeah,
2: the, the relative positions of the stars are basically a star map on the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. And then, once you've got that, how do you find the shapes?
2: Well, the shapes are usually defined by roads, tracks, paths, rivers. Sometimes you know the actual landscape itself. Modern a lot of modern roads are obviously built on older roads. So. Yeah.
1: One of the things that particularly interested me about the book um, is you mentioned the relationship of the Zodiac to a mound near Chorley uh, called Round Loaf, which is on Angles Ark Hill. Um, do you think you could talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah. Um, Round Loaf is probably the second largest mound in England behind Silbury Hill. It has... 20, at least 20 ley lines radiating from it. Wow. Uh, it seems to be the focal point of the Zodiac. It's on angles Moor, um, which is a pretty desolate place. Mm. In fact, to get to Roundloaf from the nearest road, it's probably at least a two-hour trek, especially these days when it's all a lot wetter than it used to be back in the 70s. But in relation to the Zodiac, all the signs... All The figures north of it are facing south, right? All the figures south of it are facing north, right. so it is obviously the focal point of the whole zodiac.
0: Yeah. And for our listeners, when we're talking about a mound here, we're talking about an ancient mound, aren't we? You know, um, presumably, um, not natural, sort of made, uh, it is man made, yeah, yes, yeah, and um. It's just incredible that that is built on this focal point with all these ley lines radiating out of it.
1: I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if they were going to build a mound, they would have built it on a place of power, and the lines
0: point towards that. Yeah. yeah. And when we're talking about the people who built this, are we talking about? Do you think uh, sort of the Neolithic ancient man who, who built this sort of these mounds and these places of power?
2: I would say probably before Neolithic times. Right. The last chapter of the book sort of outlines my my theories. I Mm. mean, it's not concrete, but it's my ideas of what possibly who possibly created these these things in the zodiacs and whatever. Um, But yeah, I think it's prehistoric. I do believe that there might have been other civilizations on this planet before man was created. In fact, there is a theory, and it's mentioned by a particular new religious organization called the Raelian movement, that this group of extraterrestrials, called the Elohim, came here several million years ago, and basically gene edited some of the higher apes that were just sort of forming at the time, and that's what created humanity. Right, okay. It's just a theory, but there is more and more evidence pointing to that these days.
1: Yeah, I mean, if really, isn't the Mormon religion, basically, based on a similar thing, the idea of there being some kind of intervention from space?
2: Yeah, I think I think they are um, they talk about somebody called Moroni, is it, uh, who actually told Joseph Smith where to find the gold tablets. The, the tablets, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Book of
1: Mormon. Going back to Angle's Ark, just briefly... Um, that's a name that's always interested me. I've heard people talk about it, and it's uh, it's just an interesting word, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a word that you'd imagine would be a hill near Chorley. Uh, no disrespect to Chorley, but it's not uh, it's not the, the greatest place in the UK. It's not something that you'd associate with uh, you know <laughs> the stuff, stuff as interesting as this. Um, and but I, I, I've looked a bit into it, and I actually um, one of our listeners, uh, Rick. Is from Chorley. And I spoke to him a bit about Angle's Ark and about um, Round Loaf. And he has mentioned that there are actually quite a lot of cryptid and UFO sightings around that area, that it is a big focal point mm-hmm. uh, for that kind of thing, which is interesting. I think one of the particular um, things which people see, one of the particular entities that people see is actually a, a dogman. Um, so that's something that we need to look into more. But it's interesting that this area that's obviously an area of power of some kind, which, you know, whether it have been built by a, a, an ancient race from elsewhere or prehistoric humans, has still got things going on today which suggest something is unusual or something is powerful about it. You know, if you imagine it's almost like a, a convergence of, of strangeness, if you like, where these ley lines cross, if UFOs are following ley lines and and things. And I think uh, one of our previous guests, Alan Greenfield, talked about the idea that places of power or portals into alternative realities are where ley lines converge, which sounds exactly like round loaf. So that kind of... Fits. Well,
0: there,
2: ha- there have been... Um there has been found once or twice evidence of uh, pagan ceremonies taking place on round love yeah. despite its remoteness.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does seem like a, a massive convergence of power with, um, there's a list in your book of all the different ley lines that radiate from it. And several of those ley lines have uh, significant UFO law attached to them. Todmorden. Um, yeah. And, and that, there's also Hebden bridge and, and so on. So in terms of, the the ley lines and the the power of the earth that sort of runs through them. Do you think that earlier races, um, who maybe built these mounds and places of power, were more sensitive to the power that runs through these ley lines than modern humans are now?
2: I would say very much so. Yeah, um, we we've seem to have lost touch with um, with our natural connection with the earth. I mean. If, if you go out and stand on the grass barefoot, you're connecting you're connecting yourself to the earth. Whereas most of us we're wearing shoes, we're um, you know we're basically indoors. We we use cars. We we're basically isolating ourselves, insulating ourselves from yeah. from the natural earth. You
1: imagine that on the on the idea that if there are uh, races that have visited our planet and have. Created these mounds, or they would be more advanced than we are, and so this would be more sensitive anyway to these areas of power. You would imagine
2: if, if they've got the ability to travel from other parts of our galaxy, and then and then obviously they are more advanced than us because we we haven't humanity hasn't travelled any further than two hundred and fifty thousand miles away at the moment. I mean, we've sent um, spacecraft. 13 billion miles away. But the the furthest we've actually gone as people is the moon.
0: Yeah. You also speak very briefly in in your book about the Bosnian pyramids, um, which are also obviously places of power. And when you have areas like Roundloaf, where they have these mounds on, on the convergences, do you think that there is is it a form of of ancient but very advanced technology um that they're using
2: to sort of harness
0: the power of the ley lines
2: yeah i think pyramids generally are um energy generators you, you know, basically using this natural earth energy it's along along the lines of what tesla was working on back at the beginning of the last century
0: mm. free energy yeah yeah
2: yeah exactly
1: One of the things that you mentioned in your book um, was to do with the the Dogon people and the uh, the Babylonian Nomo um, and their relationship with the star Sirius. Um, Sirius seems to be something which comes up a lot in all sorts of different ways, doesn't it? I mean, it, there's there's the whole um, the whole idea with the experiences of um, Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson, which all kind of were supposedly to do with linked to the 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 star Sirius. Um, it seems to be particularly relevant to all sorts of areas of esoteric interest.
0: One of the, interestingly in your book, the part of the zodiac that linked mine and Buckley's yeah. childhood houses was part of the dog Sirius being the dog star, has, has the dog star, and then Sirius itself um, is reflected in a church in Churchtown, I think, which is a bit kind of between where our houses were. Yeah.
2: All of the known Zodiacs have a dog figure associated with them. Yeah. Which initially most people thought it might have been um, Cerberus, the um, guardian of the underworld. Okay. Or, or the lower heavens, as it's also known. But I don't believe that at all because Cerberus was a three-headed dog and all the dogs in the Zodiacs are one-headed. Yeah. So my belief is that it, it is connected with Sirius. I mean, you mentioned the Dogon tribe. Well, they they knew about Sirius B, which is where this NOMO people came from, according to their history. I mean, long before modern astronomers knew about Sirius B, because it's such a small, faint star that's part of the two-star system of Sirius. But it was so faint compared to Sirius, which is the brightest star in the night sky. Mm. Um, that nobody knew about it until, what, two or three hundred years ago? And the Dogon tribe knew about it way before that, about a thousand years or more ago. Um, But the Dogon, sorry, the the Nomo tribe, the Nomales, are supposedly a semi-aquatic race. Okay. Who allegedly come from a planet surrounding, around Sirius B.
0: Right, and is that separate from the um, ancient civilization that we were talking about earlier, who, who built the mounds on the sites and that kind of thing, or is it all? Are they all part of the same race?
2: Uh, no, I think the different races is, uh, There's been reported of races from um, Procyon, which is not too far from Sirius, from our point of view. I mean, distance wise, from there is different, but you know, in the same part of the sky as Sirius. Um, there's association with um, people from the Pleiades, which is also in the same part of the sky, Orion. They're all, they're all sort of local to us in our part of the galaxy. So, you know, it's sort of next door, really.
0: And once the, these ancient civilizations had built the sites of power, um, did they then leave uh, Earth?
2: There's, there's stories suggesting that some extraterrestrials are still here. There's also, um, I've also read about um, a species of reptoid who descended from the dinosaurs after the dinosaurs were wiped out 65 million years ago. Uh, some, some of the smaller dinosaurs survived and evolved over 60 odd million years mm. to become sort of hominid-like two-legged standing on their on the two-legs type uh, creatures who. After a war with the with the Elohim, who allegedly created us, retreated underground. I mean, they were a massive civilization, according to what I read.
0: Oh right, okay. And so they, they're still on Earth now, um, or, or have they have they gone extinct?
2: No, they're still living subterranean. There's there's a there's a file I discovered, a PDF file I'm called the Lacerta files. Lacerta is Latin for lizard. Oh, okay and it's supposedly an interview with one of these uh, creatures from this civilization and wow. they live underground not the hollow earth as as some people refer to but mm-hmm. it's sort okay. of deep caverns way down sort of you know way way deeper than than we've ever been but They've got massive civilizations down there, allegedly.
0: It's really fascinating in in the context of Helia, which is a documentary that me and Buckley had watched earlier last year, um, in which th- there is you know evidence in that or suggestion in that of some sort of uh, cave dwelling creatures uh, with the three toed footprints and that kind of thing. Um, and that, that this does seem to come up over and over again. Um, yeah, with the other, I mean hellier and penny royal is just the start i was watching a documentary i don't know if have you seen this the moment of contact i was i was watching that over christmas and um again the you had the three-toed footprint uh being found ar- around that again um so it, it does seem that there is some ancient lore attached to this as well as as modern day sightings
1: yeah i mean there was the um uh, there was a the whole Agartha thing, which was, uh, I, I don't know if that's the same as the hollow earth theory, but it's the idea of the being, I think an area underground and ancient races sort of still that are still under there. Um, and then there was of course the whole, um, Richard Shaver mythos that was all, um, with the, the Dero and the Terro, which were again, uh, a, an ancient race that live underground and prey on humans in some way. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, if, it's hard to tell, isn't it? It's one of those things where I think the best way to approach it is you can't dismiss it entirely, but also you can't believe it entirely, and you've just got to keep an open mind and kind of entertain the idea. But it is it is fascinating. This and th- this. Um, sorry, what was the name of it again? The Lacerta. Lacerta,
2: Yeah. Well, according to the according to those interviews, they tend to shun contact with humans. Okay. Because, you know, obviously. It was the creators of humans, according to their history, that uh, that had this war with them, and s- which they retreated underground. That so, you know, the, they don't want contact with us. But I suppose if it came to the point where maybe a few years down the line they decide they want to take back the surface again, who knows?
1: Uh, what do you think it was that made her um, make this contact? Is that described in the document or?
2: Sort of describe. I mean, it's highly edited, so there's not a lot of information, and in they just just the edited interview. But I don't know. I think she she wanted. I think possibly she did want to put her story across. But again, she's also said that if we ever enter into their territory, you won't survive.
1: Yeah. So yeah. we're not welcome. As long as we kind of almost keep ourselves to ourselves. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and they have way more advanced technology than us, which has obviously developed over 50-odd million years.
0: And does any of that technology explain modern UFO sightings, do you think?
2: Well, again, according to this interview, their, their craft are highly shielded. So if we do see one of their craft, then it's either operator error or malfunction in the equipment. Right. In fact when she's described some of their craft, it sounds very similar to the sighting that I had back in 68. Right, okay. Ah.
0: That's interesting. I'll try and find a link to the Lissert file and put yeah. that in the show notes to this so that people can, and you reference it uh, in your book as well yes. as a source, yeah. And what do you think, um, assuming that the craft that we see are,
1: are theirs, what do you think the purpose of, of coming out above the surface is?
2: Apparently, they have bases, they have, or they had, I don't know whether they still have, but they've had bases on Mars, the moon, some of the satellites of Jupiter and Saturn. Mm. So, you know, maybe they're moving from one part of the Earth to another, visiting the civilizations of theirs, of theirs. going out to these bases out there
1: yeah i mean if they're extremely advanced we probably wouldn't necessarily understand their motives anyway i mean an ant isn't going to understand why a person does what they do
2: plus they supposedly have the ability to using psychic powers make us see them as human rather than
1: okay right so that that can call into question anything, can't it? Yeah. Because, I mean, that that sort of thing you can imagine has an influence on, you know, like, say, the shapeshifters on the X-Files and stuff like that. Um,
0: it kind of... Yeah, and you get modern-day sightings of lizard men in, in various parts of America as well, don't you? You know, as well as reptilian-alien encounters and that kind of thing, uh, which, which may be connected. And the Elohim who um, they had the conflict with, did they then leave Earth after they'd, uh, you said that they edited um, the human uh, yeah. genome to, to change the ape into the modern human. Did the Elohim stick around or, or did they go?
2: Well, according to the uh, Raelian movement, they have had representatives on Earth. for. Um, in fact, they, they claim that Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and the current um, cloud um, who's a French guy, are all Elohim people. They're all they're all people
0: from their planet. Okay, so m- more advanced species than than, yeah. than our own, which kind of could explain why you know obviously these are these are all people which you've.
1: I'm not sure of the the last one, the French person, because I'm not aware of of that person. But when you talk about sort of Jesus or Buddha, you know that th- they're all. Um, people who seem to have had some kind of advanced powers beyond our comprehension. Obviously that's kind of lost in the midst of time and we don't know how we would describe that now with our current terminology or technology, but it kind of does tie into the idea of, you know, almost the, the, uh, was got an astronaut kind of theory, you know, and we spoke in a a couple of episodes ago about our love for the, uh, the song, the Christeberg song, Spaceman came traveling, but, um, you know, there may
0: be some element of truth in that. Yeah. And, and it, are the Yellowhim then the only species of alien that we have currently on Earth, according to, to your research?
2: Uh, well, I haven't researched a lot into other alien species. I'd like to. That might be another book sometime down the line. But um, according to various sources, there are probably... Well, even, even the Lacertophiles say that there's 14 alien species on Earth. Fourteen. Two or three of them are uh, hostile. Okay. Most are friendly and some just don't care about us. They don't, they're not bothered about us.
0: It's interesting because when you were talking about Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, these were all teachers mm-hmm. that have tried in their own way to better humanity, I suppose, even though often their teachings have been misapplied and used for purposes that are less than good,
2: they've more it, or less been deified, haven't they?
0: Exactly, yeah. Which is which is really interesting because it, that that definitely seems like a benign, um, at least at the source, uh, seems like a benign um, contact. So when you say that these are present on Earth, is this something that the government knows about?
2: Uh, it has been suggested that governments, especially the two the three main governments in the world, the Chinese, the Americans and the Russians, do know about them and ha- are supposedly working with some of them.
1: Well,
0: that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of um, theories, isn't there, around that? I mean, it, I guess it ties in very much in a similar way to the, the, the idea that the governments are working with, um, you know, whatever is behind UFOs, just the idea that they they know something that we don't and that is kind of responsible for certain advances in technology i know there's a there's a theory that kind of craft that have been or artifacts that have been uncovered from craft site uh, crash sites this technology has been used by governments to further human technology Mm -hmm. which makes perfect sense um, especially from a military perspective uh, because it's a great way to get um, one up over your you know (laughs) a rival country or is to have technology that's sort of incredibly advanced, um, but it's it's really
0: hard to tell, isn't it? Um, yeah. So the idea that modern rapid advancement in technology is somehow fueled by the knowledge of more advanced races, um, and I suppose that begs the question of why do they keep them if they're if they're helping society if they're you know you've got Jesus, Buddha, Mohammed, obviously quite high profile, and then you have the fact that our technology is benefiting from um, advancements from their civilizations, why they are keeping themselves secret
2: Ah, difficult question now. um obviously, as part of the arms race, they don't want the enemy to know what they've got, and vice versa and um, but really, what we need is world peace, yeah. But it has been suggested that world peace would only come about by an extraterrestrial invasion, or even a fake one.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's like Watchmen, isn't it? Yeah. uh, He drops the giant squid on New York and it brings an end to the war.
2: Well, according to Ancient Alien, the octopus octopus has no DNA match with any other species on Earth.
0: I've heard that, yeah. This is really fascinating because the little I know about octopuses is insane in terms yeah. of their their capabilities and their intelligence. They don't have a brain like we have a brain. They have delocalized intelligence throughout their nervous system. Um, and that really, I think, is now changing the way that human beings look at intelligence as, as a thing, you know, because that might be the closest thing that we currently have in mainstream science to an extraterrestrial. Uh, but you also have the intelligence of birds, you know, corvids, crows and that kind of thing which again works in a different way to humans works in a different way to um cephalopods it's it's just another form of advanced intelligence they use tools they communicate um they form bonds um i've even seen evidence that they play games for fun and that kind of thing i think that we might find that there is intelligence in in forms that we just never even suspected you know i mean last year there was reports of spiders that could dream or been found to be dreaming and that kind of thing and that really alters i think probably what we consider our place to be yeah i mean we're
1: it's arrogant for us to assume that we're the only intelligence and we're the only valid form of consciousness and it's arrogant for us as a race to assume that we're the only intelligence we're the only you know it's but that's kind of what humans are like we are quite arrogant and that is probably why you know these other races should they exist are keeping away from us because they know that we're not particularly great can't be trusted can we no i mean
2: dolphins are supposedly probably as intelligent as us, but they don't have the manual dexterity that we have
1: yeah they've got they've got other things though haven't they they can They can swim. (laughs) Echolocation. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, dolphins are pretty amazing. I mean, all that stuff that John C. Lilly did with them um, back in the, I think it was the 60s. I mean, some of it was probably quite unethical, sort of giving them LSD and stuff, but um, it's such a shame that his work wasn't able to have been continued because it would have been fascinating to actually have had more of a connection with these creatures as a race, you know, and to be able to communicate with them better. But I think um the government basically shut him down because uh probably because he was giving LSD to dolphins really, but I think it was mainly that they just were afraid of anyone who was thinking differently or, you know, about consciousness at the time, you know, much in the same way that they, they burnt all of um uh the Orgone guy, what's his name? Wilhelm um, Reich. Yeah. yeah, they burnt all of his books because he was looking at things differently. It's like things that are outside of the mainstream will get kind of the the either the government or the CIA people will try and shut it down if it's different um I mean we were talking earlier about like I'm going off on a tangent here, but here we are uh, we were talking about psychic powers weren't we and the idea of um people with with psychic
0: abilities and stuff remote like that. viewing in particular, which is yeah there's strong evidence that remote viewing is very real, and that the military and the CIA and of at least the American government and probably governments all over the world. Have been using this and having very, very accurate results.
2: Yes, definitely. Solarians in
0: Doctor Who, haven't you? Yeah, well, it's interesting that, I mean, there's the idea of preconditioning, the idea that some of this stuff which is passed off as fiction, you know, Doctor Who or The X Files or even Star Trek, that there's this theory that actually these people had access to some other knowledge um, and perhaps it isn't quite so fictional and, pe- and perhaps it's factual and that these people are putting the ideas out there, like the, um, what was the race in Doctor Who?
2: The yeah, that
0: that those sort of ideas are being put into the public consciousness so that when these ideas are revealed to be actually true, um people kind of have a basis for it and are prepared for it. And it's quite an interesting fun theory that, because that was the same with Gene Modernbury, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. That, that with he, the uh,
0: nine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wonder how much that, that could apply to to
1: this kind of thing, really, when you when you look at um when you go back to sort of Underground races and and things like that because it is it's probably something that's been around throughout mythology. Um, you know the idea of things of the underground. I mean, it's a the underground is a essentially another frontier, isn't it? Much like space or the desert or the sea. You know, it's somewhere where we where humans aren't familiar with. It's not our natural um, kind of environment, and so we we're vulnerable there, and we're not able to fully explore it as we have uh The surface of the planet, but we 're also not able to fully destroy it as we have the surface
0: of the planet as well so there's there 's there's benefits there um and it does make you wonder about whether these points of power are connected in other ways to folklore you know going back through the years and I know that you mentioned in your book Arthurian legend um and um obviously the connection between Lancelot and Lancashire and the the lady in the lake um and oh yeah. We should go into
1: that a bit more, actually, because I think that was a that was a really interesting part of the book because that referred to quite a lot of local areas, didn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you think there is a, a connection between ancient folklore, legends, and these zodiacs and points of power?
2: Well, as as I did mention in the book, uh, Lancashire is supposedly derived from Lancelot's Shire. and the um, Martin Mere on the way to Southport. Is supposedly the lake of the Lady of the Lake legend. Yeah. And uh, also Alder Liege, which is the Aquarius yeah. area. There's the legend there. There was this man taking his horse to market to sell a white horse. And actually, while he was crossing Alder Liege, he was accosted by this old man dressed in black and offered to buy the horse off him. He said, No, I'll take it to market, I'll get a better price there. So he took it to market. All day didn't sell it, so he was trekking back across towards and back to Mobile where he came from. And the same man accosted him again, offered him to buy the horse again. Anyway, he agreed then, and the man sort of banged his staff on the rock and opened out a set of gates. They went in, and according to this legend, there was the the knights of the Round Table were interred there, awaiting the return of the golden age. The golden age is obviously the golden age of Aquarius. Um, and uh, there was, all bar one had a horse, had a white horse. So he he took the horse and then let the man downstairs where there was masses of treasures and take away one for the horse.
0: This is fascinating because obviously it's a, a fascinating legend, but it also links directly to what you were talking about as in a, um, Well, an advanced species, I suppose, living within the Earth. And obviously what in the story could be said to be magic, you know, the tapping of the staff on the rocks to make the passageway open into the Earth could also be an advanced technology. Exactly. Which is absolutely fascinating, which would mean that the legend of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Round Table could come from a whole completely different species.
2: King Arthur has also been associated with the Glastonbury area.
0: Yeah, which is
1: a big legend sort of thing, isn't it? And that's got its own uh, terrestrial zodiac as well.
2: Even Uh, Jesus was supposed to have visited um, Glastonbury as well with St John the Baptist.
1: Wow. And I I know, like, um, with any kind of mythology or folklore... The, the story kind of will evolve over time. If it's hundreds of thousands of years old or whatever, you know, it will, it will change. So maybe it started out being uh, about an advanced race that were in the hills, but then it gradually mutated over time to being just some men or whatever, you know, it will change, won't it? It will, it will kind of evolve. That's kind of how it works. Um, or it
2: could go the other way as well, sort of yeah. something blown out of, proportion and becomes something really really big when
1: it was something minor yeah that's kind of how storytelling works isn't it but then i suppose that it's that whole idea isn't it of uh like alan greenfield was saying about there's no such thing as hoaxes you know the idea that someone could start something out with the intention of of tricking someone almost and then that becomes you know hundreds or thousands of years later that becomes a, a new mythology uh in itself so that's all, that's all fascinating stuff. And it, it makes you wonder as well. I mean, you know, like, like Heim was saying, like the, it, it goes into the underground. and It's another example of the being, you know, in an area that relates to um, something of power, you know, a place of power, a place of significance. And you wonder what would happen if you tapped a staff on Roundloaf and what would open up. And I mean, I'd, I'd very much like to go there, actually. Um,
2: well, it would, I wouldn't be a question of tapping a stuff I would probably make some sort of chant
0: yeah There's, it, it comes up in other parts of folklore as well doesn't it fairy tales the Piper of Hamelin yeah s- similar thing isn't it and with a chant that immediately makes me think of um,
1: something we've talked about before as well the uh, the idea of repetition and the idea of that being uh, if you think about kind of whether it be meditation or shamanic drumming you know we've talked before haven't we about our repetition
0: uh, there's lots of examples that you've Yeah, and ritual music and, and again the Pied Piper of Hamelin has the music element to it as well, you know the there's tones in there, there's repeated tones, um, you know like we are saying, rhythm um, all, all this sort of thing which could in humans alter consciousness Alter consciousness, thus
1: opening a gateway, you know, the opening of a door doesn't necessarily have to be a literal opening it could be an opening of a door in your mind that allows you to perceive something which has been there or it was there already, you know, you just couldn't see it, which is... um, Or triggering
2: parts of your brain that you hardly use. Exactly, Yeah. yeah.
0: With your book, the Lemang Zodiac, how would you recommend to our listeners that they can start their own investigations, like what you've done?
2: Uh, well, all the zodiacs I know of have been mentioned in the book. That I don't think there's any more that are undiscovered. There might be one or two, but I don't know. Um, but if anybody comes up with something that that's previously unknown, then obviously uh, get it down on paper, get it get it written down, like I did.
0: And presumably you could use the documented ley line sites that you have in your book for people who want to have their own UFO experience or whatever, I suppose, that the ley lines and the areas of power would be a good place to start.
2: You could also use the book as well to sort of walk the uh, the, the outlines.
0: Yeah, that's something we've talked
1: about doing because once the weather gets a bit better, obviously, but you know, we, we, I, I live very near to... Um, the bull area of the Zodiac, um, of the Le Mans Zodiac. And there's, there's, I think there's quite a few bits in your area of Cheshire, aren't there? Yeah. Because it'd be interesting to, you know, spend some time in these places and actually kind of um, soak up the vibe, you know, li- maybe literally soak up the vibrations, you know, if there is, if there is something happening there, um, you know, it, it's something that I think when we started doing vase, it was, intended not to be just a podcast, but to have like a fieldwork element yeah. to it. And I think that that's one of the things which um, sort of drew us to you as a potential guest was the idea that we could tie in the fieldwork you've previously done and use that and the research you've previously done use that for our own fieldwork because it all related to our area very specifically. So well, that you was-
2: mentioned Taurus, well, Taurus was... When I, when I first discovered the Zodiac, Leo... Which was the first one I discovered was yeah. my rising sign on my horoscope, and Taurus is my sun sign on my horoscope. Right. I was living in Preston at the time, but also, um, the Pleiades are part of the Taurus, right? And they're marked out by the churches in Leyland.
1: Oh yeah, so I remember now. There's a a, a section, um, there's a, a part where you describe how there's a there's a pub in Leyland, isn't it? The Seven Stars.
2: It's two. There's the Seven Stars and the old original Seven Stars. Right. Okay. I think the, the one of the seven stars now is closed, but it's, I think it's a hairdressers or something.
0: Right. It just goes to show the significance of some of these names, you know, and how far they go back and what these names relate to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a pub names have, I remember there used to be, it's gone now, but there used to be a pub um, near Garstan called The Green Man. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, there's and there's the Eagle and Child, you know, the, the, there's always been pub names have, or a lot of pub names have have had, um, have always been something which have had like yeah. mythological significance. In
2: Preston, there's a lot of pubs named after bull. With the Black Bull, is the the White Bull. There's the Bull and Royal, the the original Black Bull. Yeah. Black bull, bull Lane.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Which is the leg of the of the uh, bull.
0: So one thing we often ask of our guests is, have you got any recommendations for any um, books or films or TV shows or music that, that, that relates to this kind of thing or that just that you'd like to share with us?
2: Well, for, for, for ley lines, I would recommend the old straight track and the ley hunter manual, both by Alfred Watkins or anything else by Alfred Watkins, because he was the first one to discover ley lines in this country. Oh, okay. Uh, there's a book called John Michelle called The View Over Atlantis.
0: And what what, does, what element does that relate to?
2: It's the whole of, um, well, basically ley lines and earth mysteries in general. Fantastic,
0: okay. fantastic.
2: Uh, there's one that I've used referenced in the book. Some of these have been referenced in, in my book. Mysterious Lancashire by Philip Rickman and Graham Nown, N-O-W-N. And go online, look for the Institute of Geomantic Research Publications. There's a lot of information about the zodiacs on there.
1: Oh, excellent. So, geomantic, I'm assuming that's similar to geomancy. Yeah. The idea of
0: like mm-hmm. magic and place yeah. coming together. Excellent. We both really, really enjoyed your book. I, I know I've read it three times already. Um, do you, are you working on anything else, a follow up to it or, or any other?
2: Well, book? I have started on one which sort of loosely based on the Lacerda files, but right. there's not enough information to sort of make it worthwhile yet I need a lot of more work to get it to sort of to pad it out sort of thing but at the moment I'm sort of my motivation isn't there at the moment it's one of those things you need to motivate yourself to sort of but like I said I'm gathering bits of information uh, bit by bit and eventually I might get it done maybe later this year I who knows
0: great well that'll be fantastic I'm looking forward to to your progress on that yeah
1: please do please do keep us yes, do updated
2: it. it will probably be called um reptilians extraterrestrials and human development
0: excellent brilliant
2: something along that sounds those lines good.
0: fantastic and where can people find your work
2: the zodiac book is um is published on amazon as a paperback print on demand paperback it's also on my own website was well, not my website it's a hosting website for um self-publishes, it's called payhip.com.
0: Oh, yeah, that was where I bought it.
2: Payhip.com slash Catherine Preston.
0: Great, I'll link to that in the and, show notes. Uh,
2: there's. All, I've got two or three other books on there. I've got a poetry book I've written, one about a football game I've developed, I've got garden football or lawn soccer. Excellent. <laughs> one, one called The Truth About Santa, <laughs> which I'm going to redo yeah, and one's a, a science fiction story I wrote, but would make a better TV series. So, Oh, excellent. Hope Fantastic. somebody buys that and maybe gives me a shed load of money. <laughs> yeah. Just go on to payhip.com in my site, and uh, you'll find all my books there.
0: Brilliant. And are you on any social media?
2: I'm on Facebook and I'm on um, Twitter.
0: Okay. What's, your, what's your Twitter handle?
2: Mayra, M-A-Y-R-A.
0: Brilliant. And do you have any uh, final thoughts for our listeners or, or anything else that you, you'd like to cover?
2: Just keep your mind open and just keep looking up and looking out. And just keep looking with an open mind.
1: Words to live by, I think. Yeah, that's think fantastic that's, advice. That's very much in line with how we, how we are.
2: Yeah. Because the, the, the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it's open. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah.
1: Catherine, thank you. thank you very much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it, um, and uh, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, we've, like I say, like Hain said, we've we've enjoyed the book, um, and yeah, we'll we'll please do keep us
0: updated about the uh, about the new book because we'd love to hear it um yeah and if anyone um, is listening they'd like to follow us on twitter or instagram um you can get us at, at vase and then vase spelt backwards so that's at v-a-y-s-e-e-s-y-a-v Um you can email us on vaseinfo at gmail.com our website is www.vase.co.uk and we've talked a lot about it but i want to carry on going on about it the band camp the soundtrack to the podcast is available on Bandcamp and uh, it's made by our very own Buckley here mm-hmm. and he uh, puts all the proceeds back into the podcast which allows us to do more of this kind of thing um, and allows us to talk to guests and allows us to you know keep the lights on and keep everything running. We don't use it literally to keep the lights on. No, but we could do if we wanted to it which is be. always an option. You know, at least yeah. we have that option now. I mean, I'm pretty glad that we don't actually. Well, no, it would be a waste. It would be a terrible waste and a bad idea. Yeah, podcasts matter more than lights. So if you do buy our uh, soundtrack, then we can assure you we will not use that to keep the lights on here. um yeah thanks again to low fold audio for letting us use the
1: beautiful Shireshead head studio it's a wonderful location and particularly appropriate for doing a podcast uh that relates to earth mysteries as soon as it's a an old church and it's uh it's in the countryside the lancashire countryside so we thought that was particularly particularly appropriate so thanks to the the lovely people at low fold audio uh maybe a shout out to some of our listeners Uh, Tom Carter who we've known for a long time Um, he's in I think he's in China at the moment so thanks for for listening Tom and we'll catch up with you soon and uh, and our old friend Jamie as well I won't give him his second name just in case but Jamie knows who he is
0: and anyone who's listening if you can um, subscribe to the podcast rate the podcast and do a review of the podcast it really really does help us um You you know, we have to try to get out as many people as we can. And the only way to do that is to game the algorithm slightly. So I think Apple Podcasts in particular is sensitive to ratings and reviews. I think Spotify have a rating system for podcasts now. Right. So five-star reviews only, please. Yeah. And uh, only brilliant reviews. If you have anything bad to say, say it quietly in your head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay so talking about things that should be said quietly in your head
1: as as listen, as regular listeners know at the end of every episode I ask a question which is um I ask a question to the guest or sometimes to Peter C. Hine himself which is uh a little bit lighter than the subject matter of the podcast just to sort of tie things off at the end end on a high note so my question for you Catherine is what's your favorite book do you have a favorite book and what is it Ah. ah. I think at this point we should you, we should probably say it's the Manche Zodiac by Catherine J. Preston.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Brilliant. Available wherever good books are sold. <laughs>
2: no, it's only on those two places. <laughs> I wish it was
1: elsewhere. Well maybe it will be after the after our podcast has taken off and you know. I want to
2: sell at least fifty thousand copies, but that's dreamy
1: you never know dream big we'll do our bit to help you
2: yeah well as uh, as it was said in South Pacific if you don't have a dream how are you going to have a dream come true